Hi everyone and welcome back to Dot to Dot, an educational podcast for teachers that shines a light on things that are working well in industry and connects them to the classroom. I'm Ryder Tracy, Head of Educational Transformation at Creatable, and in today's episode I have the great pleasure of talking with Boaz Paldi. Welcome Boaz. Thank you so much, a pleasure to be here. So I'll just introduce uh, some of the work that you've done to date. It's a, it's a long list, Boaz, but you know, since 2018, Boaz has been leading the Lion's Share Fund, which is an animal conservation fund that we'll hear more about later. And before being appointed to this current role, Boaz led UNDP's advocacy and communication, as well as co-founding the Social Good Summit. Boaz is now the Global Engagement Partnership Manager at the UNDP. Now, Boaz, before I go too much further, in education, we're pretty renowned for acronyms, but I'd just like you to explain uh, what the UNDP stands for, who they are, and the work that they do. Absolutely. UNDP stands for United Nations Development Program. We are the, we are the UN's largest UN agency. Uh, we are on the ground in about 170 countries with about 6,000 programs that are operational every single day. Um, we have a staff of about 40,000 people all working um, to essentially uh, eradicate poverty, to, uh, to fight inequality, to really try and, uh, and give e- everyone an equal chance at a fair life. And that's kind of like really at the heart of our mandate. But, you know, the reduction of poverty is a very, very complicated issue. It, we call it the multidimensional poverty. But that, what that means is that, you know, there are so many layers to it and so many things to do. What we've discovered of late uh, in the last maybe five years is that there's no point in doing anything else unless we tackle the big elephant in the room, which is the climate crisis. Um, so we've devoted much of our energy and time into really diving into mitigation efforts, um, adaptation efforts, and trying to stave off the worst uh, impacts of the climate emergency as we see it unfolding. Wow, that's uh, that's that's quite a brief. I, I think that Everyone that's listening here today, you know, um, we're, we're educators at our heart. And I think that uh, one of the things we're kind of finding more and more is this kind of sense of global problems, you know, um, as you've kind of articulated there. And one of the things we're really interested in here at Creatable is about finding and building those kind of global skills, you know. So in your role, like I'm interested in the idea of global citizenship because, as you said, multidimensional kind of solutions for complex problems. You have to coordinate across borders. You have to coordinate across agencies. You have to coordinate between industry and government. I think that you'll be a really good person to kind of ask, you know, about the idea of global citizenship. Is that a phrase that comes up in your kind of work? And if so, what does it mean to you? And if not, what do you think global citizenship should kind of look like into the future? I mean, the the ideal, the utopia, as it were, is global citizenship. Uh, we want all of us to be living on a single planet. It's the only planet that we have. Um, and we want to be uh, taking care of that planet in a way that's sustainable and um, and will keep our, our generations to come, our children, our grandchildren, their grandchildren, all of us living a healthy, happy life on this planet. Um, the problem is, um, there's a disconnect between what the uh, the ideal is, ideal is and what is actually happening. The more people think about uh, the world as their home rather than Australia, Kenya, or New Zealand as their home, the better. Uh, you know, global citizenship 
is is imperative to us solving the problems because the problems that we face right now are global problems they're not they're not national problems in any way the earth doesn't care about national borders we've seen that over and over again the earth will most likely survive humanity but we won't survive as a human race if we don't get this right right now and that it's and it's absolutely imperative that we all work together on this every single human being on this planet has a role to play in solving these issues uh it, it's it's heartening to hear and empowering I, I i feel like i've i hear that message and then the next question i think is what is that role, you know, to play? Like, what are the actions that I can actually take? Teachers are fantastic at, at um, conveying information and transferring skills and building capacity, mindsets and attitudes. Could you help me with a little bit of the specificity around the actual role or the, the things that we could do? Absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, everyone needs to be aware of the issue. So education is absolutely essential here. And educating young people is imperative. The faster everyone is educated about that, the better. So the first the first act of citizenship is knowledge, is understanding of what of what is actually going on. The second act of citizenship is take action. Take action wherever you can take action. If it's at the polls to vote for the right people to be in government so they can make the right decisions, that's what you have to do. If it's if it's changing your light bulbs to long lasting last light bulbs, that's what you have to do. So every citizen around the world has, a, in a way, a role to play in, first of all, in understanding what the problem is, and then through their not local networks, understanding what are the small personal choices that one can make that will make it better, but also the bigger choices. But, you know, it's, it's policy that's going to make a difference here. So, so the one thing is like to really understand what that policy is, to try and dive into it and to, and to understand where you sit within that policy and what, what are the actions that you can take. And every action is different. Every, every situation, every local situation will be, will be slightly different. I, I really like that, that last kind of emphasis on, you know, contextual solutions and the small ones and the raise awareness so that you can take action. In my kind of teaching experience, you know, I think uh, perhaps maybe I used to compartmentalize kind of some of those ideas. Like, you know, I've got maths in the morning, I've got English following up, and then I've got a little bit of time to talk about reducing waste. Or I wonder, you know, how to take that kind of constant embedding in everything we do, you know, in every step and the modeling. I like what you said about imbuing, embedding this in everyday in everyday activities, you know, throughout the day. Like it's not kind of like a lesson about the name, the crisis in nature. It's not a lesson about emittance in the in the atmosphere or decarbonization. It's it should be just a, a matter of fact part of our lives every day as we move forward. Really to try all of us together to solve this issue. My big uh, hope, my my very very strong belief is that humanity at its best, can solve this together, but it has to be together. Well, that leads me to this kind of idea of partnership, you know, which is another aspect of your role that I'd I'd like to talk about. We've got a lot of educational literature that talks to us about, you know, team building and group activities and collaboration. You know, that's a little different to partnerships in the real world as well, you know, and I was wondering if there are any kind of important skills or attributes that that you would say a good partnership requires? I think, um, you know, in, in reality, partnerships are made up of people. 
So they're made up of individuals that come together and decide to collaborate, work together on a common cause. The first thing that you need to do is find a common cause, something that you can you, know, you can agree with with your partners that is a that is the cause that you want to pursue, and and then it's really about forming that bond between people rather than between entities because you know. UNDP in all its glory is, is a giant bureaucracy that can't really be related to people, but an individual within UNDP can be related to people. The same is true for corporations. The same is true, is true for schools. So same is true for everything. I think really kind of like what works in partnership is a bond between people, is, is a common understanding that you have a common goal and you will collaborate together on it and you will be in a way in the trenches together. And, you know, and that's what really makes partnership. It's, it's, that, it's that human bond. It's, it's like making friends in the playground. It's, it's about kind of like listening. It's about understanding. It's about empathy. It's about understanding common goals. And I think that's really what's at the heart of partnership. Do you have a, a, an example from your work that you could unpack for us? Because that just sounded such a, a beautiful synergy of the words. I'd love to hear it in practice. Yeah, I do have an example. The example is actually really close to home to you guys. Um, you know, the lion share that I work on um, was really a, an idea that came out of Australia from a small company called Finch, um, from a from a director called uh, Chris Nelius, um, and and the and the CEO and founder of Finch, Mr. Rob Galuzzo. Um, and they came, Rob came to me with the idea of the lion share after he'd been flogging it around for a while and didn't really find a home for it. And I saw, I saw potential in it and we started working on it together. So Bo, as you mentioned, the lion's share fund there, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Um, the lion's share is a very, very uh, simple, effective idea. Came out of Australia um, uh, and, um, you know, a young man called Chris Nelius uh, thought it up while he was watching TV. He was he was actually watching an ad on the telly and, and there was animals, uh, I think it was uh, selling uh, insurance. And he didn't quite see the connection between the animals selling the insurance and the insurance. But then he realized that animals really sell a lot of products. In fact, afterwards, we discovered that that 20% of all global advertisement includes images of animals. But everyone in an ad gets paid. The actors, the extras, the lighting people, the cameraman, the director, everyone gets something. The animals get nothing in return. They just sell our products. So the lion's share allows for advertisers to give back to animals, to nature, by signing an agreement and donating 0.5% of all of their media spend for each ad that includes an animal. Um, That doesn't sound like a lot, but if the top 20 advertisers in the world all signed up to LionShare, which is not the case yet, we would have $40 million from that alone. All of that money is pulled together, and then and then we use it in UNDP through partners. We've had some huge successes in Indonesia in the Lasor ecosystem. We've had successes in uh, in Mozambique to conserve elephants, and all of these through these pooled funds of zero point five percent of uh, of media spend from ads that include images of animals. But what really kind of brought the idea together was was a bond that we formed, uh, Rob, Chris, and myself, that will forever be a very, very, very deep friendship. Moving forward with the lion's share, a lot of the partnership we built was around personal connections. We connected with people, we connected with people in Mars, uh, Mars Incorporated, who 
you know, also became our friends. We connected in people in the advertisement industry who also became our friends. And it became a family of people who were, who had a common goal to really try and achieve this very, very new and exciting approach to conservation. But there's there's dozens of, the, of examples like that in partnership where really kind of like you, you cut through the bureaucracy, you cut through the red tape, and you talk to people like people people to people, and you form a bond, you form an empathy, you form a friendship, you form, you form, you form a partnership. That is so articulate, you know, like the idea of bonding with a common goal, talking to people like people, you know, working together, forming friendship, and then having that common cause and following it through. It makes a lot of sense. Like the execution of that, you know, can be tricky. Of course. It, it, it pops into my mind, you know, when you're speaking there, I'm thinking, as a, as a teacher, um, who am I in partnership? Probably the home, you know, carer, parent, you know, guardian and, and the kind of community at a greater point. You'd think we'd have a common goal, you know, like the parent also wants the child to be as successful as possible. As you say, like the bureaucracy or the kind of system or the relationship, how it forms in its initial instant is really formative. I'm conscious now, you know, if I'm in the classroom and I'm teaching, that I want to make a positive connection with the parent before it's kind of reactionary to something that's occurred. Do you, do you have any advice? Like, obviously, the scale you work at is is immense, but at a at a low level, I, I think some of those principles probably remain true. Do you say? So do you have any advice for kind of that parent teacher relationship and fostering success in that partnership? Well, I'm, I'm also a parent, um, um, and uh, you know, I see it as one of my primary jobs. You know, I, I work in UNDP as my job, but one of my most important jobs in life is to be a parent to my two sons. Um, one of them is a uh, four-year-old, so still still in preschool, and one of them is in third grade in the United States. Uh, he's he's nine years old, and I actively form a partnership with the school and with the teachers. I constantly think about it. I constantly think about being involved and being part of the process and being and being available and being and being out there for not only for my son but for the school in general, for the other kids in his class, for, for whatever 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 uh, educational needs they need and really kind of trying to be as, as much of an active partner in this as possible. I, I think it is a partnership. I think uh, you know these, these days I mean, it wasn't like that when I was growing up. You know, it was a, it was a very different educational system, um, but I'm very old. But these days, that's you know, that's the, that's that's what I would expect a school to do. I would expect them to form a partnership with me. I live in a community that, where that's available. Not everyone has that, but it's so much better for the kid. The idea that you know that education doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at three o'clock in the afternoon when my son comes home. I'm I'm you know I'm in a way kind of educating my kids throughout the day and it's not kind of telling them off and telling them to eat with their mouth closed it's like talking to them playing with them you know loving them it's all part of the growing up and an educational system so for me kind of like the fact that they're in school from eight o'clock in the morning until three o'clock in the morning that's a major part of their life i want to be influential in that but i want to be helpful to that institution and to that environment as much as i can because that's the way that it has to work it has to be in partnership 
Uh, yeah, I think that's really well articulated. Certainly the education literature supports you there. You know, the stronger the kind of relationship there, you know, the more likely those uh, outcomes are to be successful long term. So that's absolutely uh, consistent with what we see. Hard to execute, though, you know. Very hard to execute. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, uh, forming partnerships within UNDP is challenging. Being a parent is beyond challenging. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the most challenging. And the most fun. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, look, it would be really remiss of me, Boaz, not to ask you, because it's it's really caught my eye, about the Don't Choose Extinction campaign. You also have a pretty extensive uh, professional history with journalism with huge amounts of success. So for those that uh, aren't familiar with the Don't Choose Extinction, Extinction campaign, um, can you just tell us a little bit about that and uh, Frankie the Dinosaur? Sure. Um there's a massive crisis that we're all facing, the climate emergency, as we as we refer to it now. But there's a critical issue within that that is fossil fuel subsidy. Fossil fuel subsidies are payments that are made by governments to predominantly fossil fuel manufacturers every year. Last year alone, $423 billion was spent on fossil fuel subsidies. That's your tax money going towards fossil fuels. The one thing that we should be moving away from, and our governments are actually subsidizing them. Most people around the world don't know that that's happening. They don't know what fossil fuel subsidies are. They don't know that we are paying for them. And they don't know the extent of, of, the, of the issue. So UNDP uh, decided that we needed to uh, have an advocacy campaign to try and talk about the issue. But on the other hand, doom and gloom campaigns about climate change just don't work. Me warning you that it's going to be dire is not going to work because it never works. People don't want to hear dire news. They, they just switch off. So we found a different way of, uh, of trying to reach people. Uh, we brought in an expert that, had, that knows a thing or two about extinction because we believe that we are on the verge of uh, facing extinction. Um, and that is Frankie the Dinosaur. Uh, Frankie the Dinosaur came to the United Nations General Assembly Hall um, and gave a speech. And that speech, he says that, um, you know, they had an asteroid. That was their excuse. What's our excuse for continuing down this path? He further says that, you know, this is the stupidest thing he's ever seen in 70 million years. And that's a, that's a campaign that we launched just prior to COP26 in, in Glasgow this year. It was, uh, it was hugely successful. We were very, very, very happy with the results. Over a billion people watched the film so far. Remarkably, we were able to really connect with people on a visceral level. And people took action. Um, it became a cultural phenomenon very quickly. And not only due to us, but because of many, many actors in the field, fossil fuel subsidies for the first time became part of the part of the agenda of COP26. It was never on the agenda before. It was never discussed, which is a which is a big achievement, not not for us, but for for the world. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a, the don't choose extinction campaign. Uh, you can you can watch Frankie on on our YouTube channel or on don'tchooseextinction.org. People will be flocking to it. <laughs> but it's such a the reason I bring it up mostly is because it's such an effective use of narrative and storytelling to kind of mobilize action, you know, and, and that's a challenge for teachers all the time. You know, when you enact illicit engagement through humor, you know, and, and you have a very uh, dry sense of humor there, Boaz, which I really like. There's there's a lesson there, I think, for us. You know, if you're, like you said, you know, your, your child's at school, like eight till three every day, it's easy to fall into that kind of monotony and the salient information not to kind of land. And so uh, taking that kind of 
obtuse uh kind of humorous kind of slant to elicit that different part of the brain function is really it's really effective you know and and i if you haven't seen it um everyone out there do yourself a favor and look up frankie the dinosaur because it's absolutely brilliant brilliant campaign <laughs> thank you so much it's, uh, you know it was uh, it took us a year and a half to make it uh, a huge struggle to uh, to make it but we're we're very very happy with it and i think humor is the way trying to to kind of get in through through that humorous channel it works people take notice and then it leads to a, to a, a larger conversation and so and it can be educational as a ta- at the same time as being humorous as being slightly absurd as being slightly you know out of this world but you know the issues are the issues they are they're still very 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 serious issues we're just discussing it in a slightly lighthearted way well, Boaz, I've got uh, one last question, which is a really hard one to, uh, to, to, to finish you on. Imagine there was a, don't worry about the logistics of this, but it's not too far from your work, really. But imagine you could teach every 10-year-old in the world one lesson, and that lesson would stick. What would be the, the learning intention, or what would you want the success criteria? What would you want kids to walk out of that lesson with, every 10-year-old in the world? It's not that hard to answer. I would want them to feel empowered. I would want them to feel that they are uh, the future of our planet, that they have the ability to change the future, and they're empowered to do so. They're empowered by us, by, by the older generation that kind of messed up this planet, and we will work with them to, to try and fix it. If a 10-year-old child feels empowered and feels that support of, to that empowerment from the world, I think that's the best lesson that could happen. First of all, there's a common goal of all of us being guardians of the planet rather than users of the planet. And that kids, 10-year-olds, are empowered to take action. They are, they are the future. Yeah, well, with, with uh, a nine-year-old in my house as a parent also uh, and a few other little ones, it's slightly, slightly concerning. So I hope there's good educators out there empowering the right actions. But you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a... Uh, what a great message to walk away with. You know, I can make a difference and the power of kind of global action and the empowerment that comes from collaboration and feeling that you can make a difference is what's going to save our planet. You know, we've got a climate emergency to solve uh, and they're going to be the ones that need to do it with our support and scaffold. Boaz, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You know, I could talk to you all day. It's absolutely insightful. Love the humour and it's just been a, a, a really real pleasure for me to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me too. Reflecting on a really great conversation with Boaz, a few points resonated with me. Firstly, partnerships, no matter how big or small, are built on the pursuit of common goals. They start with conversations that build relationships and ultimately form partnerships. Boaz also spoke about global problems needing global solutions and that these need to be enacted by global citizens. And the first step of global citizenship is awareness. It stuck with me that we need to embed change within everyday activity rather than bolting it on as an afterthought when we have time. I also loved his answer to what to teach every 10-year-old, empowerment. It was provoking to hear him call out that we aren't in a generational relay. We can't just pass the baton to the next generation and hope for the best. We have a responsibility to scaffold their success and empower them to save the world. And finally, I loved his sense of humour. He used humour as an enabler, engagement as a path to behaviour change. And on that note, I'd like to hand over to Frankie the Dinosaur to close out with a few thoughts from the Don't Choose Extinction campaign. 
Listen up, people. I know a thing or two about extinction. And let me tell you, and you'd kind of think this would be obvious, going extinct is a bad thing. And driving yourselves extinct? In 70 million years, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. At least we had an asteroid. What's your excuse? You're headed for a climate disaster, and yet every year governments spend hundreds of billions of public funds on fossil fuel subsidies. Imagine if we had spent hundreds of billions per year subsidizing giant meteors. That's what you're doing right now. Think of all the other things you could do with that money. Around the world, people are living in poverty. Don't you think helping them would make more sense than, I don't know, paying for the demise of your entire species? Let me be real for a second. You've got a huge opportunity right now. As you rebuild your economies and bounce back from this pandemic, this is humanity's big chance. So here's my wild idea. Don't choose extinction. Save your species before it's too late. It's time for you humans to stop making excuses and start making changes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dot to Dot. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't, what you'd like more of, or what you learned. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you awesome conversations about what you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. Dot to Dot is a creatable podcast hosted by me, Ryder Tracy, and produced by Sophie Ellis. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug country. Catch you next week.